the Extremis Publishing Podcast is endorsed by Heart 200, Scotland's most exciting road trip. Find out more at heart200.scot. Welcome to the Extremist Publishing Podcast. I'm Tom Christie. Welcome to our Burns Night special of the Extremist Publishing Podcast, where I'm delighted to be joined by Mr Robert Murray, who's the author of The Spirit of Robbie Burns, and also someone who spent many years studying the work of Scotland's National Bard. Robbie, welcome. Hello Tom, it's a pleasure to be back here <laughs> having a chat with you. Well it's always a pleasure to discuss Burns with you Robbie because I know he's someone who you've studied for many years um, and every year in Scotland and all across the world we celebrate the life of Robert Burns on the 25th of January. Now what is it you think it is about that date that is so significant to Burns' life? The 25th of January 1759, a, a momentous occasion when Robert Burns uh, entered the world in that clay bigging in, in Alloway. Uh, what, a, what a man, and it's often been said that he was heaven sent, but in actual fact, perhaps he was, but the brain was developed. His education seemed to by his father, who himself uh, was a writer, uh, a man who worked on the land, and yet he wrote a guiding book for the family um, on on religious matters. The father was extremely important and of course Burns's mother and a, a relative, Betty Davidson, who worked with them in the, in, in the cottage. Burns soaked up all of this, was from the very earliest infant years. So it's no surprise, it's hard work. Burns himself studied hard at an early age and was an avid reader and every aspect of life. So yes, perhaps um, he he wasn't gifted to the world with all of that. He worked jolly hard to get where he was. Now it's fair to say that Robert Burns' literary works took the country by storm when they were first published. But of course Burns was much more than just a poet. He soon became a major cultural figure, not just in Scotland but much further afield. What kind of impact do you think he had on the country in his lifetime? Quite huge, I think. Um, without being too <laughs> too uh, naive about it, Burns opened up for the population at large a huge insight into their lives. I think he ab- was able to plot their position in life. There was no one who was a spokesperson for. Uh, the hard-working, poverty-stricken people in Scotland. The the gentry, the landed gentry, had the money and the votes in uh, government, uh, political world. The the population at large had no say. They were they were victims of circumstance and um, poverty. Uh, and Burns, in his writing, allowed people 
who were able to read. And I have to say, <laughs> in passing, one of the things that's been quite important is that the early days of education in every small village across Scotland where reading and writing was part of a, an elementary school education. Without that, uh, a, a great deal of the understanding of Burns would never have been initially um, understood. And if someone couldn't read or write, then possibly somebody that they knew could read or write. So when Burns' uh, first works came out, his Kilmarnock edition, the fact that people were able to read and write was a major uh, a major plus point. But more than that, when they read what Burns had to say, they identified with Burns. Burns was equally poverty-stricken by them. He certainly was a farmer, but in those days, uh, there was there was little money. There was there was poverty all around, and inequality, and uh, people people were unafraid to argue. I think Burns gave them a voice to some extent as well, but they certainly gave he gave them an understanding of what the world was like and his humour, his wit, his uh, analysis of life, his observations, be it uh, whatever aspect, political, uh, nature, geographical, uh, whatever. Burns gave people this uh, understanding. So I think culturally he um, was a moving force in, in helping people understand that. Difficult to say how it all went on in, 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 in later years, but the impact was quite amazing. And in fact, apart from the local country people who were poverty stricken, when he went to Edinburgh shortly after the publication uh, in Kilmarnock, he was, he was treated as a uh, a genius. He was he was introduced to the highest in the land, be it religious, political, legal figures. They couldn't believe that a man labelled as a ploughman could have written what he had written. And so not only did he capture the, the imagination and the understanding from his fellow poverty-stricken uh, people with whom he had great admiration for the, the way they lived, he 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 was he was um, uh, understood, and I think <laughs> the 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 well-off learned people couldn't believe that a plowman could have written this. But it also made them look at themselves because he had already been satirical enough in what he'd said, be it religious or politics. It made people look at themselves. So again, how far that was translated into future. Uh, policies or whatever. But in those days, the small nucleus of uh, uh, the learned people in a tiny part of the country, i.e. the old Edinburgh, city of Edinburgh, um, that was an amazing achievement. Unintended, but it, that's what happened. Now, one of the main ways that we celebrate the life of Robert Burns now is through the annual Burns Supper traditions. Um, could you describe to us some of the main elements of a Burns Supper? I mean, how do the different stages of that meal relate to Burns in his life? Yes, it's quite interesting. Uh, first I should say, I don't think in Burns's lifetime 
suppers were being held. I, I, I can't put a date on it, but I would say probably the early 1800s, after, after Burns had passed, there were various moves to build monuments, to build statues, to build um, memorials, um, f physical uh, elements which reflected uh, the, uh, the pride that people had in, in what Burns had to do. And then, at that point, suppers, I think, would be held by groups of people all over the country, but mainly starting off in his own native Ayrshire, uh, these these suppers would begin to uh, celebrate the life of, of Burns. And I think one of the very early things that happened was on the 13th, I think it was, the 13th of January, um, immediately following his um, publication uh, uh, in 1786 in Kil uh, Kilmarnock edition, he was invited by the Grand Master Mason of um, of Scotland to a dinner in Edinburgh and that's the first recorded uh, item I've read where Burns was toasted and the toast then was to Brother Burns, Caledonia's Bard and that's <laughs> and the toast given that night I've used it myself now in uh, on uh, Immortal Memories it's, I refer to it as the very first um, toast to Robert Burns but it wouldn't be until the 1800s when suppers became common, more commonplace and growing and growing to every borough and town, city in, in, in the land um, would have its supper. So the supper, uh, <laughs> one of the interesting early parts of it is uh, the, the piping in of the haggis. Uh, why a haggis? Well, <laughs> life in Scotland was pretty rough for the poverty-stricken um, peasants in the countryside oatmeal uh, and I know the English actually thought all of Scotland did eat nothing else but oatmeal <laughs> and they weren't far wrong but variations of oatmeal would come along with different dressings be it onions and be it uh, various parts of uh, uh, pigs and animals for flavouring all of this so the haggis became the chieftain of the puddings <laughs> and so in a strange way this is still celebrated because um, that that was a, a major part of life um, in in families like Robert Burns. So yes, we had the, we have the welcome and the the piping in of the haggis, and the Selkirk Grace. Uh, of course, the Selkirk Grace has been attributed to Robert Burns, but in actual fact, it's not entirely true. But there were uh, there were writings about a grace uh, previously. Uh, I think somebody by the name of Cunningham, uh, Alan Cunningham, attributed the Selkirk Grace to Robert Burns. But I think Mr. Cunningham attributed several things to different authors. He wasn't exactly accurate on these things. So the Selkirk Grace is um, is is given, and then the meal. Of course, I've mentioned the haggis. Anything Scottish, of course, Scottish soup, uh, Scottish meat, Scottish fruits. Uh, Anything Scottish has is, is obviously got to be uh, the, um, the mainstay of, of the menu. And, uh, of course, the royal toast uh, is given in today's suppers. Now, here's another interesting point, because 
<laughs> By the early 1800s, it would have been possible, yes, that the royal toast would be given to the, ser the monarch of that day. But in Burns' time, of course, that would be the very last thing. <laughs> With the Hanoverian George, uh, that would be the very last thing uh, Robert Burns would want to have heard. <laughs> uh, he may have been turning a little bit in his grave, but um, things moved on, and so uh, a loyal toast would be part is, is part of today's proceedings. And then a song or a poem is usually introduced at this stage, and and then an immortal memory. Uh, an immortal memory is uh, a, a speech given by someone who is going to refer to the life and works of Burns, some of it humorous, some of it serious, but all of it is sincere admiration for Robert Burns and all his works. So the immortal memory is a keystone element of, um, of, any, uh, of any evening, uh, followed by Auld Lang Syne. And um, of course, before that, there's the reply from the ladies. And um, the, the first toast is the toast to the lassies. So following the immortal memory, there will be a toast uh, to the lassies. And this is uh, usually jocular and um, uh, respectful, but a little bit teasing and a little bit, um, nothing nasty, but just a little bit teasing. And of course then uh, there's a reply um, to the laddies. And this is a speech given by a lassie. And uh, again, uh, humorous, poking fun, uh, little bits of um, <laughs> little bits of irony, etc., built into it. But I think nowadays, the whoever gives the the toast to the lassies and the reply to the laddies, they they do they do uh, work together. They corroborate on these things just to try and get a balanced picture and, and answer each other's uh, inquisitive and cheeky comments. So that's that's actually quite um, <laughs> that's quite uh, amusing. Uh, so that's that. And then Auld Lang Syne at the end, um, of course there may be another song or poem introduced, depends on the length of the, the programme. But Auld Lang Syne again is, a, is a, a, an amazing piece of history attached to Auld Lang Syne. Robert Burns actually did capture what we know today as the Auld Lang Syne. But there were various efforts going way back um, I've, I've got um, notes of uh, someone by the name of Sir Robert Ayton who wrote something initially that looked a little bit like uh, an old Lang Syne. Um, that was passed on. Alan Ramsey had, a, had a, uh, an attempt at doing something and so did um, Lady Nairn, the, the Jacobite uh, songstress. She had a version of old Lang Syne. All of it is quite interesting reading but what's quite startling is that Robert Burns captured it succinctly in the fewest words and his, his um, content of all the verses of Auld Lang Syne because we don't always hear all the verses but it's reminiscing in a, in a coothy Scottish way of how we paddled in the stream or paddled in the burn all these years to go together. He's, he's, he's knitted together the, the country, Scottish country comradeship of uh, boys, teenagers and men over the years how they've um, 
kept together and they've kept their memories alive and that's what all Lang Syne's all about but Burns was the he captured it what we have today and it's gone round the world of course as uh, the song we all now know and so I think that's the end of a of a typical Burns supper evening Given the brevity of his life, Burns was a prolific writer and he was someone who obviously cared deeply for his country and for his fellow human being. What do you think are the key works which best typify his attitude to life? What goes down, or what comes to people's minds, I think, with Burns is, first of all, he's got this label of loving the lassies. Inevitably, songs of uh, his loves come uh, come immediately to mind I think that would be a fair statement and he also has a love of nature, his observations his observations of um, elements of life in nature but of course it was wider than that too because he he liked to uh, satirically uh, have an attack at the kirk as, and rightly so I think in those days and and that again is something that he'd be endeared to by his um, his uh, poverty stricken people in the countryside because the Kirk was quite a, an alarming serious uh, limiting factor on the joy of people in, in those days so he had a an, an, a, an ability to satirise politics and the Kirk he he loved his country, he loved Scotland uh, Scots were hey a man's a man for all that um, in nature we talk about the uh, the Burks of Aberfeldy a rosebud by my early walk to a mouse but interestingly uh, his, his uh, poem to a mouse uh, appears at first glance to be about nature but it actually encapsulates the little house built uh, by the mouse in the field encapsulates the struggle of his fellow man. So it was more than a poem just about a mouse and a nest. It actually reflected uh, symbolically that uh, here's a little mouse whose tiny little dwelling has been has been damaged and, and what can the poor mouse do about it. That That's the sort of thing that would capture uh, people's minds. Relationships... Um, he would pick up on uh, characters uh, the Cotter's Saturday Night again these people who endured harsh life in Scotland would never imagine that somebody could actually sit down and write a, a description of a Cotter's Saturday Night who on earth has ever actually thought about writing about a Cotter's Saturday Night and here's a man that's come along and put it into words and people say how Yes, that's what we do. This man, Burns, knows all about us. That's the way we live. So that's that's about him observing life. Um, and there's, you know, he's got a poem, The Old Farmer's New Year Salutation to His Mayor. And on New Year's morning, I've read that um, for a slight difference, all they had was a, a little touch of honey on their porridge, that was the New Year treat. It wasn't just a, a normal bowl of porridge. It was a touch of touch of honey that's been saved up um, carefully somewhere. That that was the New Year. And and Burns goes out and speaks to his horse, and um, he comes back and writes it. And then 
when he reads it back to his own family, they all roar and laugh and have a, a real giggle about how he's talked to the mayor. And of course, you can imagine every household, not every household, but a household could afford uh, a mayor, a house, a, a horse, would um, would recognise and, and, and resonate with, with all of that. So I think there's a, a collection of all of these things. Burns, there was no holds barred. He, he wanted to tell the world what life was like for the poor man. He wanted to explain that and, and describe that and he didn't, I don't think, necessarily set out to have a hit at um, at the uh, the government or or the or the order of life, but he certainly wanted to describe it, and he wanted his fellow man to understand that uh, he understood their plight. Interesting, though, I think Burns is put down as uh, a great lover, and. Um, his relationships with the ladies has sometimes, by some, categorised him as being uh, a, a, a man, a lad that chased the lassies. But I want to say something that's quite important here. When you read about Burns and his loves, the ladies that he fell in love with had no had no future, and the lady he married, Jean Jean Armour. She was the second oldest of about 11 children. And in her case, her father was a fairly well-to-do man. He was an artisan. He was a builder or a mason. So he had a relatively a little bit of money. But Jean Armour, if she'd not met Robert Burns, was destined to spend the whole of her life actually bringing up the remaining nine children in her mother in, in, in the home. That would have been Jean Armour's future. That's all she had to look forward to. And his other lady friends had no future other than to be a maid somewhere and a working maid, a living maid. Where were they ever going to find a husband uh, who was going to actually look after them? It, it was a, a desperate plight for a lady um, a young lass in a family in those days, where on earth, and they may, they they would have seen Burns. He was a farmer, but he wasn't a, a rich farmer. He was a poor farmer, but I think he attracted them because he was able to speak. He was able to converse, and he would be attractive in that sense. And uh, so, I think it's quite important to point out that he didn't go around chasing the girls and leaving them. In, in desperate straits. He, one of his great qualities was he looked after everybody he ever came across. In his own family he saw to every everyone in the family was well cared for. He looked after every one of his ladies and that he fell in love with and made sure that ultimately uh, he did what he could for them. So yes, his works reflected all of these elements and that's, I think, what makes him so great. He simply told the world how he saw the world, and the world he was speaking to were the ones who actually identified that this uh, this is our world. This is this man is talking about us, and uh, that's why he was lauded so quickly and immediately uh, acclaimed. I think it's fair to say that a major part of the enjoyment of Burns' poetry is not just an appreciation of its literary quality, 
but also the way that vocal performance brings it to life. How do you think that actors and recitalists generally approach the work of Burns today? It's interesting. Burns' um, songs weren't initially written as songs. Burns, uh, we know, uh, sat on his mother's lap and she was humming tunes and uh, songs to Burns. And as I said earlier, Betty Davidson was a a cousin of um, Robert's mother. And uh, they worked hard together in 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 the in the old clay biggin in the in the cottage in Alloway. So Betty Davidson and Burns' mother had a great knowledge of um, background ballads, ancient hums and songs. They would be humming in these tunes as Robert grew up. And it's said that Robert Burns didn't have quite the ear as his brother Gilbert did. Gilbert was allegedly uh, um, pronounced by people at the school to be a slightly better ear for music. But the interesting thing is that Robert Burns, I th- the more I read about him, all day long, all as far as he could go, was humming tunes to himself at the plough, working in the farm, walking here and there. It said he always had a book under his arm. He all he read at the table at the family. He read. He was a he was an enthusiast for the written word, but he was also humming these tunes. And it's interesting now to know that when he wrote something like My Love is Like a Red, Red Rose, he wrote the words to fit the tune. So he had tunes in his head. He probably spent days and weeks and months with a tune before he actually found the words that uh, followed the tune. And so I think people... who want to perform Burns' works today have to be aware of of of, um, of all of that. Um, I'm not quite sure if there's. Uh, I think if if it's poetry, uh, it's it's a subject that has to be taken uh, seriously, and and the understanding of the language that was uh, that the poem was written in by Burns has to be fully um, understood i'm i'm i've learned uh, a few poems at school um, I, I don't sing and i don't recite poems but the the basic understanding is the language and the tune in its in, in, in itself that's that's i think the fundamental elements of burns's work so any any performer coming to um, produce uh, works like that need to need to be aware of that. As we discussed earlier, Burns nights aren't just enjoyed here in Scotland. They take place right across the United Kingdom and all over the planet. So what exactly is it about his work, do you think, that continues to remain relevant and influence people even now in the present day? I think it's the honesty and his respect and his observations, his his ability to see through cant and hypocrisy, he can cut through all of that. His um, ability to see things clearly and deliver that message in his own way, and that is picked up 
uh, I, th I think that's uh, one of the most important uh, aspects that comes to me at mind. He, um, I'm told he goes down quite well in Russia, for example, but and, and I'm sure <laughs> Burns was probably quite a strict um, uh, Democrat. He um, he would reflect that in his work and in his way of life and his his uh, his writings were attacking um, any element that and that's why he attacked royalty because he didn't he didn't see that as um, helping the democratic process and it's interesting that uh, I came across recently a quote um, a little story which at the end of the American Civil War Abe Lincoln was addressing his uh, senators a dinner for all the senators and, and the the purpose of the dinner, I believe, was to reunite America after the uh, the, the rigors and the horrors of the, the Civil War. And um, Abe recited a piece at the dinner, uh, and evidently he, he recited Burns uh, most evenings at home, privately. But one senator said to John Hay, that was Abe's secretary, uh, he said, what the hell's that man talking about? <laughs> and when finished, Abe turned to John Hay and said, Robert Burns has been my inspiration all these recent years. Without him, we would never have won the wars. So please fix a passage for me to Scotland, as I wish to pay homage to that great man. And John Hay did. But the next evening, Abe Lincoln went to the theatre and say no more. Abe Lincoln would have loved <laughs> he would have loved a trip to Scotland to meet his hero. That's one example I can quote where Burns was accepted uh, and uh, appealed to the strength and the nature of a governing man, somebody who spent his life in politics and obviously saw the merits uh, in what Burns had written. So one example uh, at one end of the scale and I'm sure the man in the street who loves his Scotland and loves his poetry and knows something about Burns, the more they would read, as I have, the more I read of Burns the more I have admiration for everything that he thought uh, and did coming from his lowly circumstances and I think that's what appeals to people. Well, Robbie, the Scotland that we live in today might be quite different from the one that Robert Burns lived in, but I think you've uh, explained to us today very clearly why it is that we've celebrated his work for so many centuries and why I think we will continue to do so for centuries to come. Thanks so much for having joined us today. It's been a pleasure, Tom. Um, uh, I'm always delighted to say something about Robert Burns. I'm not an expert on Robert Burns, but what I can say is the more I read and I, when I get an opportunity to uh, uh, seek another book for my shelf, it's about the life of Robert Burns. And uh, it's such an amazing aspect of not just Burns' life, but life in the, in the time of Burns. It's a fascinating aspect to study what was going on in the country. And no, no wonder Burns reached the pinnacle 
as he did because he he touched on everybody's senses and that's 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 the great man that he was Robbie's book The Spirit of Robbie Burns is available to buy from all good independent booksellers and internet retailers worldwide thanks very much for having joined us today I hope that you will have a wonderful Burns night and hope that you'll tune in again soon If you would like to find out more about advertising on the Extremist Publishing Podcast, please visit their website at www.extremistpublishing.com for details.